0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. I am here with John Piotti, the president and CEO of the American Farmland Trust and a family friend who I actually haven't met yet, but our (laughs) wives know each other very well. And I've been a big admirer of your work from afar. So it's great to have you here, John. It's
1: great to be here.
0: So we've got John Mooney here from Bidwell Restaurant at the Union Market. uh, And you've got a restaurant in New York I do. As well, um, I think called uh, Bell Book and Candle. You've made a big impression here in Washington. We were just talking about, I was just kind of bragging about your work with the aeroponic garden, if I've said that correctly, exactly. uh, that's producing the vegetables and the herbs that you actually use at the restaurant. And special surprise guest, a first for everything on Ad Passion and Stir, Paul Woodall, also known as Woody, our producer and an expert not only in restaurants and food, but and just about everything we've discussed here on maybe sixty, seventy episodes of Ad Passion and Sarah Woody. It's great to have you at the table. Yeah, it's great to be here, Billy. Thanks, thanks for asking me. Thanks for being here. Okay, we're going to start with John. I know that you've got an interesting background that is focused on these farmland issues mm-hmm. for a long time. But mm-hmm. you were also a legislator and a policymaker That's for a great. while in the state of Maine. You, we were just chatting because you've got yeah. a son at MIT, and mm-hmm. you went to MIT as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. How did you get into this business, John?
1: How did I get into this business? Well, do um, you want the whole story? Yeah, I do, I do. <laughs> well, the whole story is pretty complicated. My, my dad died when I was quite young, and we were a family of sailors, and we had taken our, our previous summer vacation to Nantucket Island and uh, my father's death he was he was killed it was quite tragic and my mother was looking for escapism so she picked up the family and moved us How to old Nantucket were you? i was um 11 at the
0: time oh, so that's a tender age yeah it
1: was a tender yeah. age and what happened is being part of a close-knit rural community really healed me and Nantucket was a very different place in the in the early 70s than it, it became it was always a place where rich people went but there was more of a year-round community at 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 that point in time anyway um the island was transformed when I was in college, skyrocketing real estate prices, technological innovations that allowed people who maybe had summered there to sort of um, live there. Anyway, the, the point is that um, my mother during this period, she had remarried a ninth-generation islander, and then he passed away sadly when I was in high school. And, and I have four older sisters. She moved off the island. I told you it was a long story. But the bottom line is I, it dawned on me during a reflective summer between college and graduate school, that I could never go home, that in my case I was economically prevented from affording property there or doing anything. But that rural places seem to do one of two things. They either become hot and trendy and hip and overpriced, as my home had done, and the same with my then fiancé and, and now wife, who grew up in southwestern Vermont that was going through a similar phenomenon. Or alternatively, they wither on the vine. And it, it dawned on me that why can't rural places create opportunities for local people who want to stay there and live there? So that became my focus. I was going to focus on well, this was 30-some-odd years ago, what I would call sustainable rural development, to allow places to, um, to uh, um, embrace local folks who wanted to remain part of it. I didn't think anything about farming. I moved to Maine soon thereafter, got involved with the community, which is sort of my M.O., and ended up co-chairing the local Um, planning committee with a dairy farmer. And after he had sized me up, as only a farmer can do, and realized I wasn't that bad, he challenged me. He said, John, you say you care about rural economic development, but you know nothing about farming. And he was right. And, you know, 30 years ago in New England, most people thought farming was completely dead. That was something that as soon as we discovered there was better topsoil in Iowa, we we moved west. But he took me under his wing. He was the first of several mentors. And I went from thinking that farming didn't have a future in places like the Northeast to realizing that if you're serious about sustainable rural development, you had to be thinking about sustainable agriculture. So I got involved.
0: Well, I mean, it's really interesting to think about the impact, as you described it, of your father's tragic death. Mm -hmm. It led your mother to have this very, it seemed Mm -hmm. like, very intentional vision of Mm -hmm. what it would take to kind of heal your family and mm-hmm. where would be the right place for that and then it led to a vision of your own about where you would find community. That's exactly uh, right. Absolutely. A, fascinating.
1: Fascinating. a better summary than mine. That is, no, no, that was absolutely good. Absolutely <laughs> fascinating.
0: Chef John Mooney, what was the motivation for you? What was the spark for the garden up on the roof and growing some of your own food?
2: I've done I've done a lot of ingredient focused um, food programs. So it originally came wanting to grow on location And uh, I converted a farm I had in Florida to separate out uh, more of a controlled environment in terms of disease and pest and soil and all the little things that go along with farming. So it was a natural progression. I've been working on it for like a little more than 20 years, though.
0: Well, let's go back a little bit farther. How did you become a chef in the first place?
2: Honestly, um, it was a little bit by default as well. I had no idea, no guide, no direction what I wanted to do. The only experience I had was-
0: um, It's not an uncommon story for chefs, right? Yeah, you know, it's (laughs) like
2: formal education didn't suit me so well. I was not the strongest student. Um, And I just found an environment, you know, from a, a guy my brother went to school with. His older brother was a chef in Chicago. And my brother thought, hey, you might want to talk to this guy. And I did. And I found a professional kitchen. And then I really, everything fell into place immediately. Never looked back.
0: Woody, we're here really because of you. Add Passion and Stir in this podcast was your vision a long time ago. Started as a radio show. And then as radio changed, we ended up thinking about a podcast. And you've shaped it and guided it and really been the force behind it from the very beginning. Say a little bit about kind of what prompted it. You've got a long history in radio. You've, got a, you've also got a history in the restaurant industry. You've worked in a lot of restaurants and, and bars, but you really had a sense that there was a, uh, a market for the kind of conversations that we have here. So just tell us a little bit about that.
3: So what uh, really was the genesis of this uh, program that we've been producing for a little over a year now was uh, one of the books you had written, The Cathedral Within, And uh, we had some mutual friends we had never met, but I was in somebody's living room, you know, listening to you uh, transfix a vast crowd of 20 people. And I was like, this person's voice needs to be heard. This is fascinating. And your relentless optimism and positivity and the the great work that I discovered you were doing in in working on, on hunger projects and, and you know, feeding the hungry. Who who doesn't want to be part of that? You know, the whole concept of share your strength, the organization you founded with your sister Debbie is taking what you have, your abilities, your strengths, your talents, and and applying them to do something good. And well. I know a little something about making programs, and I think you, sir, would make a great host, and eight short years later, we did it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Resisted for a while, and the day job interfered for a while, but we finally cleared the decks.
3: Yeah, well, there were lots of challenges to it, and a lot of it had to do with the changing and evolving media landscape, the fact that if we were to uh, create a radio program, uh, A, nobody's was making a radio program like we had envisioned, number one. And unlike other media where they want to be first to do it, radio typically was, uh, who else is doing it? You know, they wanted to always just copy somebody else. And when smartphones and and connectivity increased and became ubiquitous, it became clear we no longer had to worry about the gatekeepers anymore. We can create our own kind of programming for the people that we want to reach, and we could do a good job doing it. And so... That essentially created the business model for this. All we had to do then was figure out what the program was. And <laughs> <laughs> that also stumped us for a while. And we tried a couple of different things and failed. Uh, yep. pretty badly at it, actually. Mm. You know, we never saw the light of day. Uh, little bits and pieces of it were, were heard or seen. But, it, you know, we knew something was missing. And, and Billy and I went out to lunch one day, and we sat around the table, and we're talking, and it's fascinating, and it's interesting, and it's lively, and you walk out of there feeling so great. And I'm like, this is it. This is what we need to do. Let's take you and a chef and somebody who's trying to make the world a better place, sit them around a the table and talk. And just talk like real people talk about the things that you really care about. And boom.
0: There we are. We passion. Are. passion and, to start. To start. and you subsequently created some other podcasts. Um, as you described it, um, this podcast has always been about the intersection of food and social change. Mm. And so, John, that makes you kind of the perfect guest to have on. We usually talk about the intersection between food and health, food mm. and climate change, food and mm. a whole range of. Of issues. One of the things that I know that you're focused on at the Mm -hmm. American Farmland Trust is that we are losing farmland at a staggering rate. I've read statistics that say it's as much as three acres a minute. That is correct. 1992 and 2012, 31 million acres. Is that the number one priority that you're focused on at American Farmland Trust?
1: Well, um, no, because um, our Our approach is very much holistic. You can't think about only the farm. You have to think about the farming practices that occur on that land, and you have to think about the farmers who are stewards of that land. So the fact that we're losing farmland at an alarming rate is critical because without that, you don't have the opportunities for the other things. If all the topsoil is flowing down the Mississippi River, you really haven't um, served your purpose. If you don't have farmers who can follow the kind of uh, practices that are wisely stewarding the land who can grow those those great vegetables that you're talking about woody um, you've missed out. So AFT is a fascinating organization. I, I sometimes describe us as the uh, the least known organization doing some of the most important work out there. Some people are familiar with the "No Farms, No Food" um, logo bumper sticker, which is is us, but they have no idea it's this organization called American Farmland Trust. Which is how old, by the way, when you um, Uh We began in 1980. Okay, so 38 years at this point in time, and we really created what I would call the conservation agriculture movement. So um, by conservation agriculture, I mean both land protection, which you do by placing easements on properties, and I also mean good farming practices, um, things that will that utilize cover crops and rotation, um, that reduce, if not eliminate, uh, use of herbicides and, and, and pesticides, and that build soil health. We're increasingly realizing that farming done right is one way to take a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere and put it put it in the soil, back in the soil. A lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of the um, carbon that is in our air has come not from burning fossil fuels, but the fact that a lot of industrial farming processes over the last 150 years have have uh, released vast amounts of, of carbon.
3: Well that that actually was a question I wanted to ask about a, a industrial farming versus mm-hmm. family farms. Do, you, do are you working with the industrial farmers because mm-hmm. to, what percentage of agriculture is controlled by those larger concerns? Yeah,
1: well it's it's um it's a tough question to answer because um, you know, people sometimes will say uh, family farms. I'll sometimes distinguish that from corporate farms. Uh, the truth is that most farms in this country are owned by families, but many of them are also corporate because that's the structure that the families have decided to use. And then people will talk about sort of industrial agriculture um, um, versus Maybe they'll talk about organic, or maybe they'll talk about sustainable, or maybe they'll talk about smaller scale. But the truth is, there's really no hard and fast definitions for any of those. At American Farmland Trust, we work with everyone. One of our hallmarks for 30-some-odd years is that is that we believe all farms have a place and all of them can do a job that's better by the environment, that's better by the land. So we've helped fairly large corn and soy farmers in the Midwest adopt farming practices that are more environmentally sound, that sequester carbon, that do a lot of good things. And that's important because that's growing a lot of our food that we're using. And when you start working with a farmer who's farming two or three or 4,000 acres, you can have impact there. But we also work with a lot of um, smaller scale farmers. So we're about
0: helping everyone do what's better by the land. And are the farmers receptive to your help? Are you pushing new <laughs> ideas on them? Or are they pulling it from you? How, what's well, the relationship? Well, it varies.
1: Farmers are, are an amazing lot, but they're, you can't put them in one category, right? right? So there are innovators, and then there are people who are incredibly
0: cautious
1: and conservative. They've probably been
0: doing things the same way a long time same in the family. Same thing a
1: long way. And beyond that, it's tough for them. I mean, it's a low-margin industry where if you do something wrong and you screw up, you may literally lose the farm. And it's not just your job. It's your family legacy. It's everything else. So it's understandable that a lot of farmers are really hesitant for change. So what a lot of what we do are demonstration projects with farmers who are more innovative and forward-looking. And then if a farmer sees that the farmer down the road is doing that kind of work, um, that that may be a, a better way of making it happen. It's mostly incentive-based or demonstration or showing examples. We've done some interesting models. So for instance, for a while in the Midwest, we did this thing called the best management practices challenge, where we said, if you follow these practices, which are, which are better for the land, but you may not be following now, We think it's actually going to improve your bottom line because your soil is going to be healthier. You'll be able to grow things better. You'll get better productivity. But we know it's a change, and we know it's going to cost a little bit more money and more management time. What we said to them is, you do this, and if you lose money, we'll pay the difference. And the truth is we paid out very little money when we did that because it really does make sense. But the farmers needed that kind of incentive. We're hoping to reinstitute on a broader scale that kind of program
0: again. John Mooney, we, we were talking earlier about this kind of farm-to-table movement, and yeah. um, I've heard what you're doing is, is referred to as roof-to-table, because <laughs> yeah, right, right, what's on the roof at uh, at Bidwell.
2: Well, those are all catchy, honestly, but I've always believed that as a professional, it's your duty to do the best you can, share the knowledge, kind of expand on what you can, you know, um, streamline, and for me it's all an evolutionary process.
0: Give, give us a sense of the restaurant of Bidwell. What's the vibe when you go there? What are you trying to— what well, are you, What are you trying to have your customers and guests experience?
2: Well, it's interesting because it's um, it's a warehouse district, basically. Yeah, a lot of wholesalers. It's got a load of history in DC. I like that, um, but it had you know gone through some rough patches. Needed the facelift, which it's getting now.
0: Have you been to Union Market? No, yeah, I have. It's yeah. it's really pretty yeah, interesting.
2: It's it's interesting. I like neighborhood restaurants. I like um, I like things to be value oriented. I think you get great ingredients. Simple presentations, but you know, things speak for themselves, so it's not very complicated. The design is very clean and neat, too. Wide open kitchen, and uh, you know, it's just set in an interesting area.
0: Well, John and I are scheming to take our wives to dinner, which we've been trying to do for about 15 years unsuccessfully. If we if we make it to Bidwell's, what should we order?
2: Well, everybody who's never eaten my food should definitely have my lobster taco. Okay, mm-hmm. I do a great burger, uh, which I think those things are like common ground for. You know, foodies and non-foodies, like, that's something people can respond to.
0: John's a Maine guy, by the way. He Mm. spends a third of his time in Maine, so the lobster taco would probably go over (laughs) pretty well. Yeah.
2: (laughs) We do great pizzas. We have an interesting pizza program. Some interesting crusts. We do a charcoal crust. We do a vegetarian-based crust. Mm. Yeah, we try to hit all the options. You know, everybody now has, you know, dietary needs, restrictions, whatnot, or preferences. So we, you know, we try to spread it out across the board in an interesting way. You focus directly on the things that come from the roof a lot. Yeah, I'm actually very interested about
3: the what you produce on the roof. How much can you bring from the roof? Use in the, in your restaurant, and is it a substantial impact on what you then purchase from outside providers?
2: Yeah, depending on the time of year, yields fluctuate because we're not covered because uh, you know zoning and structure, all that kind of stuff. Because I could grow all year round on location if I covered, but big time summer, uh, August, September, huge months for production. Like I said, crops-
3: And what are you growing like in August and September? What are you harvesting?
2: I have like mm, 20 varieties of tomato, one of my biggest favorites. All the herbs, lettuces, chilies, squash, pumpkin, watermelon. I mean, we have a huge crop. Hmm. Uh, We produce about about four acres uh, if it was a conventional grow. Wow. We get rapid growth because there's no resistance from soil. We don't use soil, obviously. We don't use any pesticides. We use predatory insects. So, what's
0: aeroponic mean when you say you don't use soil? What what is? Okay, so hydroponic
2: basically is you know nutrient water, okay. and that's what we use. except We do it vertically, better ergonomics, better space management, larger crops, smaller area. You know, pretty straightforward. But uh, aeroponic usually pertains to an in industry as interspersed control of water. So we use twelve minutes of energy. We do use energy. 12 minutes of energy an hour, but we don't have any runoff, which you do in conventional growing um, where your pesticides would go into the water table and things like that, which we can get into. But anyway, we um, we control the water injection through a timer system. We use uh, no energy on a gravity-fed irrigation system. It's all on floats. The best analogy is a toilet, which I'm str- I've struggled many years to give a better analogy when it comes to growing food. But... Um, we use less than 10% of the water required to grow conventionally. And I'm not against conventional growing at all. It's just, like I, I mentioned earlier, we try to make the best use of dead space. Mm-hmm. And in major cities, especially like New York, it really suits us well. To be able to do what I want to do as a chef and have it on location. It does a lot for the staff as well. They all get to learn and maintain, give them a little better sense of pride of where our food comes from. And I think it translates into the guest
0: experience. So, John Piatti from the... Uh Point of view of the American farmland. Yes. How, how, how does this resonate with you? I, I think uh, growing good food anywhere in any way
1: is a is a fine thing. Yeah. Yeah. I we want we do care a lot about soil health, but we're yeah.
0: we're fine with hydroponic operations too. Well, because well, one of the things I was going to ask, we were talking about uh, kind of the notion of farm to table and sustainability, and we were particularly talking, John about the degree to which a lot of our farmland is disappearing and is yes. being converted to other uses and what a, what a potential crisis that is. And one of my questions, really, for both of you, you're kind of an example of it, John Mooney at Bidwell, but I was going to ask you, John Piotti, what, for, for the average person who's mm-hmm. not a farmer, mm-hmm. who's not a restaurateur with mm-hmm. a rooftop uh, hydroponic garden, what can the average person be doing to make a difference? Somebody's listening to this and they're really mm-hmm. alarmed about the the uh, evaporating farmland. Right, uh, right. What can somebody be doing if they want to make a difference on this? Well, issue? I think
1: there's many things you can do. One one you can you can eat right. I mean, your your purchasing decisions whether it's at, at a good restaurant um or if it's just at the supermarket or if you're a member of a CSA, or go to a farmers market, That's what community you supported supported agriculture right. which
0: delivers fresh produce to you. Exactly. Okay.
1: Um any any options like that? Every time you buy food in any way, you're you're sending a signal. Um, and so be intentional. So Pay be attention. Exactly, exactly. So that's that's one thing you can do. Is that Set, a fair, John? Yeah, is, is that fair? Yeah. yeah. The second thing I'd say you can do is is get dirty. Um, you know, you don't. There's opportunities even if you live in the city to grow something. You know, even if it's a small little pot on on your on your windowsill but ideally a community garden that. or yeah. something like Platter that
2: boxes window boxes yeah.
1: exact anything you can do cuz you two things are gonna happen one you're gonna get something out of it um, some produce or whatever that's fantastic, even if it's just some herbs that you can clip. But the second thing is I think you will have a greater appreciation of those farmers who really can grow good stuff. It's an art. So that's the second thing you can do. And then if you really care about farmland loss and you live in a place with an active land trust, get get involved with there. Most land trusts are working on farmland protection. And of course, I have to mention, you can become a member of American Farmland Trust. We're we'll a membership you, organization. We are a membership organization. That's we'll great. give you one of our great no farms, no food bumper stickers.
0: And best website is AmericanFarmlandTrust.org. Dot org. org, yep. Okay. John Mooney, when you're uh, not growing your own food, but when you're looking to get great food from yeah. farmers and other places, what goes into your decision making?
2: I use my community a lot, my chef community. I like that dialogue. I like for me. I, I always tell everybody, I've never had a job; I've only had a lifestyle. So I pretty much encompass all that into my
0: my living world. Are you also uh, in the course of your work? Because I know chefs do this a lot. You must be teaching a lot of your team about these same practices that you've been modeling.
2: Yeah, every day. I so. like to have a conversation. I believe in roots. For instance, I made a roasted lamb on Saturday and we decided to do an anchovy sauce because I I really like that. And anchovies are like hit or miss sometimes with the guests. So I said, okay, let's say it's like a, it's a herb mustard, but there's anchovies in there. Okay. And then I told him, you know, this dish is not something I just dreamed up. It's something I had in Italy in one of my first trips to Europe, you know, 20 years ago. And I think that it's like a perfect combination, but... The guest is not always going to get that that magic that happened 20 years ago when I was in Tuscany or whatever. But, you know, it's important to have roots.
0: Yeah. One of the things I'm curious about, we've had so many chefs on this uh, podcast, and so many of them are part of, I guess, what is called kind of the farm-to-table movement mm-hmm. in, the, mm-hmm. in the food world. Mm-hmm. Uh, are chefs uh, a constituency for what you're doing as well, because it seems like there's such a strong attraction on their part yeah. now to be sourcing food that is fresh, that is local, that is right. sustainable. Right. How do you think about that? Are they part of the American Farmland Trust, uh, to, or can we help them become part well,
1: of Well, I'd, I'd love them to become more active. The The truth is that AFT really was a true pioneer in this early area. And uh, in fact, you know, folks like Alice Walters, who were involved with AFT back Thirty years ago, um, the Dupont, this is the DuPont, Alice Waters,
0: the chef at pa- Shape yes, Penny's right. in Berkeley, um, California,
1: the uh, Dupont Farmers Market, which everybody loves, that was started by AFT. So we've always had a direct connection. Um, in the, the local food movement and the farm-to-table movement. Um, ironically, uh, I think everyone and their brother has sort of caught that bug in the last 10 years or so. Um, and in some ways, that's a period where, where, where AFT sort of um, was not riding the wave that we actually helped create. So we'd love to get more energy in that area. But we are all about not only the land but the food that's produced on it again, no farms, no food is 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 our logo. So we'd love to see more of those kind of connections.
0: What you were talking about, Eastern Market, and you've been up here a long time. Have you seen it change in some really major ways o- over the years?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, used to be the only produce or vegetables you would get. It would be inside where the green grocer is. But it was the same vegetables and fruits that you could have gotten at any major supermarket. There was no local produce being delivered there. And now, several times a week, you have farmers trucking their own own things in, or you have retailers who have purchased locally, and you know everything is branded as local, and you know where it's coming from, so it's kind of sourced, and it's it's a much, much different world.
1: And I just want to pick up on what Woody's saying, because what you've described is what a lot of people have been experiencing, primarily in the last five to 10 years. And it's so powerful. They are appreciating the quality of the food. They're making connections with the farmers. They're hearing the farmer's stories. It's so powerful. And sometimes I've been at this work for almost 30 years, and most days I'm very optimistic. But what gives me even greater optimism when I'm a little bit (laughs) saddened or disgruntled about this stuff is that we are educating our consumers. Our eaters in this country are, are increasingly getting it. And I think that bodes well. AFT does a lot of work with, with farm policy, which can be a very frustrating area. Um, but um, I see hope because more there's there's a greater and greater connection between people and their
0: food and between
1: the food and the farms that grow it.
0: And I'm assuming that at the end of the day, the market forces are going to be mm-hmm. the most powerful impact more than government or more than anything else. So mm-hmm. as consumers get... Um, more educated, as Absolutely. they have stronger preferences for the kind of food that they're eating, that's probably going to shape. Yes, it's already, practices. it is already shaping things.
3: Uh, I've heard something that I thought was very interesting that as more uh, local sourcing happens mm-hmm. with farm, you're actually reducing the risk of like mass contamination of food mm-hmm. and, and minimizing outbreaks of like E. coli mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. So is that a benefit that you promote when trying to promote local sourcing of, of agriculture?
1: Well, there's a, a, a awful lot of benefits from being diversified, and um, you know, for folks who don't lo- know a lot about farming, I say maybe you have a stock portfolio, and obviously, if you have your if you have your eggs in many different baskets, there's advantages there, and it's the same. It's the same with farms. The example that you pointed out, if if Almost all of your lettuce is coming from two or three farms in this country, and there's a problem there. Um, then it's it's big. If if you're sourcing your lettuce from Hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of farms, even if there's a problem in one place, the impact is going to be less. Um, Diversification also just makes sense uh, as a way of uh, making sure the farm is more resilient to um, crop failures that might occur, to weather disruptions, and and things of that sort. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of – I could list a whole – um, oh, I can list a long list of, of reasons why um, diversified farms and, and small farms really um, provide so much value to our community. It's not just the food. It's often the lifeblood of rural economic vitality. And, of course, farmland itself plays a huge role in environmental protection. Um, it's often a wildlife habitat. It's water recharge. I mentioned earlier that um, farming done right can sequester a lot of carbon. I think that's increasingly going to be something we look for our farms to, to more than just grow our food, but also to help us restore our planet. So, um, you know, I'm obviously, I, I have my biases. I've worked in this area for 30 years. I think farming is our future. I think if we don't get farming right, um, we can't have a sustainable future. So the flip side of that is that farming done right can produce a large number of very positive results.
0: I want to ask you a little bit about some of the misperceptions around this. I worked on Capitol Hill for Mm -hmm. a number of years, and we always thought in terms of farm state senators Mm -hmm. from Iowa, Nebraska, and other places, and then non-farm state senators, and there always seemed to be this uh, gap that felt almost unbridgeable sometimes, Mm -hmm. except around maybe issues like the SNAP food stamp program, where there was a mutual interest what do you do? What are some of the misperceptions among, mm-hmm. among non-farm state mm-hmm. uh, senators or, or, or political figures, doesn't have to be the Senate, uh, in terms of the, the importance of the farming community and mm-hmm. what kind of things are you doing to, yeah. to kind of overcome that?
1: Well, one thing we're doing is this study that you alluded to that, that shows that we're losing farmland at, at an alarming rate. It also points out that we have really important farmland all across this country, um, I think when sometimes we think of major farm states like, you know, say, Indiana or Iowa or something like that, um, it's because there's there's a lot of very good farmland. Often it's wall to wall, and they're growing um, commodity crops um, pretty intently. A lot of it's corn and soy in those two particular states, and that's what we equate to farm states. And obviously, the farm economy is very important in those places. But there is good farming being done in every state in in the union, and there's important farms everywhere. Give us
0: an example of something that would surprise us in that regard.
1: Well, um, if you go to almost any state, there will be local vegetables and fruits that are being grown often right on the urban edge. Any state in the Northeast, any state in the West is producing often um, a lot of food that's really important uh, to the local population. And we sometimes dismiss that. We we think about farming as being the big commodity crops. We don't necessarily thinking, think of fruits and vegetables. And this is another place where this... Focus on on local farms and co- focus on higher quality and more nutritious food is playing out because as people realize the importance of fruits and vegetables in their diets, more of those are being produced close to home and in many cases, the flavor of those is more exceptional when it's a a, a farm that's closer to you, and the mm-hmm. product isn't sitting on a truck for for two weeks, and people are increasingly recognizing that and demanding that, and that's making a big difference.
3: Uh, you, you, you were talking about awareness and people adjusting their diet uh, this morning. Mm. I went to make myself a little breakfast, and I got this loaf of whole wheat bread, and I look at ingredients now like mm. I never used to do before. And so number one ingredient wheat. Number two ingredient water. Number three, number three ingredient in mm. this allegedly healthy food I was trying to make for myself. Uh. High corn fructose, syrup. Corn okay, syrup. See, we were going to ask the same <laughs> yeah.
0: question. You and I were on the same page. I was ask about the power of the farm lobby and whether it's too much, but go ahead. Yeah, there's well, corn well, syrup and everything.
3: Yeah. Uh, so I know we're losing farmland, but anecdotally, I'm hearing that corn is being planted on lands that never grew anything before mm-hmm. because of the global demand for high fructose corn syrup. And mm-hmm. how do how do you you know how do you reconcile? You know, we talked about the the, uh, demand driving Mm -hmm. good and powerful positive change for farming. How also do you reconcile the demand for a product like high-fructose corn syrup Mm -hmm. in the decision-making that's happening in what product to grow, what what crops to grow?
1: Well, it's a great question, and um, if you have a couple of hours, we can get (laughs) into some some detail on this. It It is complicated. It also raises some questions that we don't have good answers to right now. So I just talked about farmland law. And that, and that worries me for obvious reasons. And once it's gone, it's gone. But a lot of people will say, well, and you're sort of making the same point, Woody, don't we have a lot of land that's being farmed for stuff that we don't really need or shouldn't, or shouldn't be growing? Um, and the research that hasn't been done yet is to look at how much land we would need in this country if we really were following the best farming practices. Because when you start following really good farming practices, you need more land for what you're growing because you need cover crops. Um, There are different things that you can plant on bare ground in order to improve soil health. So it might be something that fixes nitrogen so you can get nitrogen in the soil naturally and you don't have to use... um, uh, fertilizers for that purpose. Um, it it could be something that just keeps the ground from being bare where soil would, would erode and wash away. And it could also just be a way of creating a crop that you can then push down and it can be a mulch and keep weeds naturally suppressed. So uh, cover crops is a general term for a range of crops that you can use uh, in your farming practices that are going to allow you to uh, reduce fertilizers and improve soil health. You need um, to uh, let the land be fallow perhaps for a period of time you may want to take marginal lands where, it, where they're being used for crops now, and they probably should not be used for crops. They should, probably should be used for for trees or simply for wildlife. Farming and wildlife can work hand-in-hand hand well, but there's some, some land that w- is not suitable for that. And nobody has ever done a nationwide analysis of how much land we really need if we were farming well. That's one of the next steps that AFT is interested in after this big study we've just done on looking at where our land is and how much we've lost in the last 20 years. I don't know what that's going to reveal. I want the data to drive that. But I suspect it will show that if we really had the best farming practices everywhere, we would not have enough land right now, which is really a scary thought. So without that information, the attitude of American Farmland Trust and a lot of the partner organizations we work with is we just have to stop the loss. You know, step one is stop stop the bleeding. Let's recognize that's land we're going to need for something in the future. If we don't have the land, we can't have fights in the future over how that land's gonna be used and what the best way to farm it is. Step one is to save the land.
0: I want to connect this to an issue that's really close to home for mm-hmm. us because Ad Passion and Stir comes out of Share Our Strength, the Anti Hunger mm-hmm. Organization, and so we're very focused on hunger, mm. food insecurity issues. What's the connection between what you're talking about in terms of loss of, of farmland mm. and the hunger and food insecurity issues that we're focused on?
1: There's there's connections on many on many levels. Um and I'll just I'll touch on a couple of them. First off, on the federal policy side, there have been some Real innovations that directly make that link, the the, the primary programmatic innovation is something called the Finney program, the Food Insecurity and Nutrition Incentive Program, which has basically provided um, uh, folks who are SNAP eligible with a chance to buy uh, fruits and vegetables at farmers markets um, and sort of have their money go twice as far. Yeah, there's an incentive to exactly use their there's an electronic incentive benefit use.
0: card that way. Exactly and get twice as much. Exactly. Product. And that
1: is a thats that has been a great program um, that has uh, been making a difference. It's only a maybe a drop in the bucket at this point, but it's it's proving its value um, and I, I think it's gonna get more support over time. So So good
0: for the farmers. Good for low-income Americans who are trying to yes. make the right choices for their family. Absolutely, a
1: it's a win-win. And uh, I think I think now that that model has been proven, and it's relatively new. That was new in the 2014 Farm Bill. I think there's other creative policy steps that we can take like that, which are which are positive and have that link. The other link is it goes back to rural economies and uh, um, and the need for farms as sort of the foundation of, of the strength of many of our rural areas. Um, as we lose farming, and even as a lot of farms become bigger, you know, there's probably as much land under cultivation in, say, uh, Nebraska today as there was 100 years ago. But there's a hell of a lot fewer farmers and, and and that means the vibrancy of the rural communities is significantly reduced. And with that, the economic opportunities. And obviously, one answer to have people having um, uh, access to healthy food is access to, to a job. And a lot of rural places, um, farming has uh, traditionally provided opportunities that we're losing right now. So there's another link, sort of the rural economic development link. The other place where there's a link, and I, it would be great if we had a chef here, is I I really think that chefs have done a great service to this country of having people recognize some of um, these connections, recognize the value of, of food, the, re, the importance of taste, the need for us to reduce food waste, all of those kind of issues. I think that the The chefs are doing such a great service to the food movement by getting people to become aware of products, care more about fresh local, and that's having an impact in so many ways. And one way it's having an impact... Is even in school cafeterias. It used to be that school cafeterias were set up with just enough space so you could you could defrost your French fries and you know throw them in the fryer later. And now they're they're being set up and the staff are being trained to use whole foods and to cut and and uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a real transformation, and uh, I think the, the the chefs and the farm to table movement have been part of that. And we've seen school systems. Um, respond, and new schools that are being built are being built with different infrastructure to allow for that.
2: That's been going on for a while. I know there's a couple guys that really focus on that, and one great chef is um, a New York guy who's really focused over the last decade and made some impact in New York is Bill Telepan. Mm -hmm. And uh, he focuses directly on student meals, when what he can do. Mm. But it's pretty crazy that they're not using whole food, though. Mm. And for the majority, it's like I, I understand, I guess, like institutional dining. If you're in an environment where people might be ill and they need somewhat of a sterile food because, you know, obvious reasons, sickness or whatnot. Other than that, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't eat anything other than.
0: Whole food. I'm
2: I'm with you, right?
1: <laughs> I'm with you, and I do think. I mean, maybe your experience has been different, but in the institutional world, there was hardly any whole foods that was used in the not too distant past. It is changing. It's just yeah. not maybe changing as fast as we'd like to see it.
2: We we, tr- we try to incorporate as many young people as we can into what we do. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense. Mm. Not only that, I have a cousin in the military, and I know a, a bunch of guys in the military just from norm, just from being in D.C., and the number one complaint I'd have to say is the quality of food, mm, yeah. which I find insane. If you're protecting our country, then why do you get the worst when it comes to what you consume? I don't get that. I don't know how everybody doesn't get that.
1: It's interesting. Uh, the military is the, the largest institutional food User in the country, but the second largest is the New York City school system. And American Farmland Trust has been working with the the school system in New York for a couple of years. And I was I was just up at a tasting that they had, um, where a variety of of students were were sampling different products to to see what they were going to like. And I was. I was really impressed by how far the school system has, has, has gone. And there's still price points and things like that, which <laughs> present yeah. formidable challenges. But, but nonetheless, they were using a lot of whole grains. They were, um, they, were, they, were, they were preparing a lot of foods fresh from whole foods. It was impressive. And uh, so I, I'm really um, pleased to see the, the, the directions that are, that
0: are happening.
2: I find the passion to be another common denominator among a lot of people in our industry, whether you're a chef or a, a restaurateur or just a just a foodie and enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of passionate guests that want to have chats, I and mean, we're cooking outside. We have a smoker on the weekend. Somebody's always passing by just out of know, general conversation.
0: How long ago do you open Bidwell?
2: Um, it'll be five years in December. Five
0: years already. Yeah, wow. honestly,
2: wow. it's been really fast.
0: Uh, one of the things that I've read, um, from you was a, um, uh, a message where you said, uh, sustainability is personal to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Uh, what did you mean by that?
2: Well, I just mentioned <clears throat> for me, it's a lifestyle, not a job. So like I, I take into account, like, you know, are we doing the right thing? Can we do it better? And I try to instill that into my crew. I always tell them just be on time and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll figure it out along the way you know it's like i don't expect everyone to dedicate their life to hospitality in some form because every you know the industry supports so many other arts music and and acting and you know other kinds of arts so people have different passions in life but i i just say you know show up and those conversations are open every day you know we do lineup before lineup is what you do with your staff before you open the doors for for uh, for your guests and we have little conversations and it's an interesting climate in our world, and it's a—I don't know. There's lots of other current events and things we have chats about to make a more enriched environment.
0: You know? are, are you referring to like the Me Too movement and sexual harassment All in the industry, stuff, yeah. which has had a lot—I mean, you know, a lot of publicity lately?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't need to mention anybody's name, but you know, there's our industry and most industries are are in a in a tough spot right now.
0: Yeah, I've been to a few lineups and family meals. Sometimes they're together yeah. where the, the chef and the restaurant staff talk about not only what's on the menu that night, but where it came from so yeah. the staff can talk about it and who some of the guests might be because you know that in advance and what some of their preferences are. How, how detailed, how deep do you go in your lineup?
2: Preferences is a big one for me. To know your guest. I mean, when I open my restaurants, I always physically operate them for the first couple of years. It was really important in D.C. because we're in a transitional neighborhood, and you really have to know what your guests are responding to, what they respond to in the price point, what they ask for, what their comments are. You know, we I'll give anybody anything they ask for. Like a lot of times the evolution of the menu is because there's regular guests that come all the time, and certain things may or may, may come and go seasonally, and seasonally, but I'll give you an example. Fried chicken used to only be one night a week. Now it's every night.
0: <laughs> Just because of demand. Yeah,
2: things like that happen. Yeah. There's <laughs> drinks on the menu that are like Randy and Dave's, you know, things like that. Those are guys that come every Sunday. Like, you know, it's their restaurant too. You know, it's, it's their restaurant we, we won't too. exist love without that. them, yeah. So you, we try to be mindful. And, uh, you know, I call it a command performance. It's like, you know, we're professionals. We have... Different drinks and cocktails and food program, so we curate that experience. So,
0: I was at a, one of these lineups at a restaurant mm. in New York, and the general manager had uh, some eight by ten glossies, and he put one on the table. Just use an example. He said, um, "Who's this?" It was a picture, a portrait of somebody, you know, just their headshot. Uh, and somebody said, "Oh, well, you know that that's John Piotti. Um, So the staff knew Mm -hmm. who it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they said, what do you need to know about John? Well, Mm -hmm. John likes to smoke two cigarettes during dinner, so we're going to have to slow the service so he can go outside, have a cigarette, come back in. I mean, Mm -hmm. they knew Mm -hmm. that level of detail, which just kind of blew me away. Amazing. So That's called service. That's that's what makes the industry (laughs) work.
2: Yeah, it does. You know, it's hard to get accurate gauge on the experience you're providing, too. There's a lot of avenues. People aren't so um, firsthand when it comes to, like, you know, Websites and blogs and people giving their opinions. So it's really important to to not overdo it, like be too engaging, but just enough to get an accurate response so that we can always make sure we're putting our best foot forward and we're making sure people leave, you know, happy, content.
0: John, in terms of this being a lifestyle for you, not a not a job and your obvious passion for growing and for sustainability. Are you the exception to the rule? Is this part of a larger movement that you fit into? Are there things that American Farmland Trust should be knowing about what's going on in the restaurant industry where there's intersections?
2: Exactly, I don't know. I like to think it all ties in together at some point, different levels depending on what kind of food programs you're doing and and things that are important to you. So like, I like to think it's all one big picture and little little snippets inside everybody's world. But in the industry, there's a few guys that I've worked with, chefs that have really, really tried to make a difference. Uh, Michelle Nishan, I worked for for many years. Mm. and
0: Yep, he yeah. was a guest on At yeah. Passion and yeah. Stir. Yep. Yeah,
2: so Michelle's really close to me. We've worked together for more than 20 years in terms of understanding, like, process and getting things out there and talking to people, being passionate. and Really, really he lives the lifestyle, always have, ever since I've known him, and I hope I'm not getting off track here, but
0: no, not at all. Yeah. I don't know if you know him. John. I do but, know Mike Yeah, a wholesome way. To, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yep. very well.
2: Yeah. Yep. So he and I've done a lot of things together. Yeah. Over the yeah, a lot more than I can actually remember. We've done a ton of things together all over the world. We had restaurants in India, and we've done a lot of consulting jobs. We designed the W Hotel first. First restaurants and you know lifestyle stuff. We really started to focus on ingredient stuff for their brand, and we worked for Drew, Drew um for both of us, worked from for maybe more than ten years apiece. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, let me ask you each um, as we start to wrap up. Uh, besides uh, John, uh, us taking our families to Bidwell's. Uh, <laughs> what's What's next for you at American Farmland Trust?
1: Well, as you mentioned earlier, we just produced this big study, but um, looking at farmland loss. But that's only. Um, a big national look, and we will, in about five months, be coming out with um, a state-by-state look, and we'll link it to a policy scorecard for each state and what states can be doing um, to serve both farmland and the state's farmers better. So that's a, a big project that we have in the
0: works right Excellent. now. We'll be looking forward to that. And, um, John Mooney, any new restaurants on the horizon? You seem to have your hands full. Are you going back and forth between here in New York, the two yeah, restaurants? Yeah,
2: and I actually have a farm in Hawaii.
0: And you have a farm oh, in wow. Hawaii.
2: Yeah, so that one, we treat it a little bit differently. It's very exclusive. We don't do a lot of social media and all the kind of things you stand you typically do to get your name out there. We keep it pretty exclusive- and uh, we have uh, special needs children, autistic children from a school on the north shore of Oahu. Um, the lady who runs my farm has an autistic son, so she organized all that. So I think that's pretty cool that younger people are uh, have different levels of focus. So a hands-on job, like like I said earlier, learning on the job type stuff, where they get to touch and feel, use all the senses and all that thing, I find is a pretty, pretty awesome way to learn being outdoors and all oh. that.
0: What's the farm called? It have a- it's called Kakele. Kakele. I've had
2: it for a few years now. The two cash crops are avocado and mango, but we have maybe 50 varieties of other exotic fruit that grow well in that in that climate. And then we have some conventional grow to demonstrate about an acre. And then we do some aeroponic as well. Basically, it's a farmhouse and a vegetable and fruit pack-out facility we sell to everybody on the North Shore. And what we use it for is um, private events, basically a chef's clubhouse where we built we actually built the kitchen out of scrap metal from the SS Missouri. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was pretty fun working that all out. And then um yeah, we just we have guests, we have a few different avenues to bring in guests. And uh, we usually keep it small. We try never to do 20, more than 20 people. The most we've ever done is 60 people, but 20 is much more manageable. So um yeah, it's, it's in an event space. It's not a full-service restaurant. So we uh, make sure the farm works and provides for what we need, and then we do small functions for uh, higher spend to make sure we cover our overhead and we have as much fun as possible. Michelle's been with me a few times, and uh, bringing David Walzog with me—he's a is he's actually a Baltimorean. He was the opening chef of Red Sage when I was there in the nineties, yep. and so we we've been buddies forever.
0: So That's right here on Fourteenth Street,
2: yeah, he, he's um he's the largest purchaser of Hawaiian seafood for his two restaurants in in Las Vegas so David and I are gonna cook and use all the exotic stuff from the farm and then we usually try to hunt or fish while we're out there and cool. uh yeah and then we you know we have a small small group of guests that come and usually take part in the whole process and we never write a menu we just cook what we have and never do the same thing twice
0: all right we're, we're maybe to, we need to go to hawaii yeah, right? you're, gonna have, you're, so you're gonna have to come back and talk to us about the farm that sounds amazing <laughs> yeah it's amazing fun. john mooney from bidwells thank you so much my pleasure for being with us thank and you. john piotti american farmland trust really a treat to have you on ad passion and stir thank you i'm billy shore you've been listening to ad passion and stir woody thank you for being with us as well paul woodall our producer and the force behind the podcast woody you're like a man for all seasons a yeah. jack of all trades thanks for being with us thanks billy Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Ad Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.